Good morning to you. If you have a Bible, you may like to turn to Luke chapter 3. Father, your word is such a precious thing to us. So very precious to us. We are hugely indebted to those by whose hand the Bible comes to us in our generation, those who laid their lives down in past generations to translate it and to preserve it and to enable us to read it today. But most of all, we thank you, Lord, that your word perseveres to the end. Heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will not. And we're very grateful that it's a living word. So we're inviting you, Father, to speak to us. This is a great time of year, Lord. We love this time of year, everything about it. And we want to hear from you. So thank you, Lord, for speaking to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So just a couple of verses from Luke chapter 3, verse 21. When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Great verses, aren't they? Christmas is a great time of year. Do you enjoy Christmas? I hope you do. Everything about it. I mean, I know we can be long-faced and say, oh, this and that and the other's wrong, but actually I like it a whole lot, really. But we have the added bonus, don't we? We focus on Jesus because I think we ought to make a lot of that. We ought to make a big deal of that. Some people say that Christmas is one of those festivals that we could do without. Easter is the main festival, isn't it? That's the key one. But I'd, I'd hate to do without Christmas, wouldn't you? It's, of course, attracted a lot of folklore to itself, but even then, even if you take that out, it's still an extraordinary story, a breathtaking story. But in some ways, the Christmas story seems to be pretty harmless. What could be more harmless, more innocuous, than the relating of a table tale about the birth of a child? What demands can a baby make upon us as far as our daily lives are concerned. Well, I say that guardedly because if you have a baby in your family, you know exactly how much demands they can make on you, but you know what the point I'm making. Especially a baby born in a different culture, different age, and perhaps it's for this reason that our neighbours find it fairly easy to embrace Christmas as a festival, even if they don't call it winter festival, but they call it Christmas. Because when all's said and done, they can put the baby away with the tinsel and all the other wrappings in January for another year. Which, of course, misses the point entirely. And there's a long pause between chapters 1 and 2 and chapter 3 of Luke. Chapters 1 and 2, of course, give us the story of the birth of Jesus. Mostly the birth of Jesus. A little bit about when he was 12, but mostly it's about Jesus. And you could almost think that Luke is telling us two stories. Chapters 1 and 2 tell us about a little baby being born 
a Christ child. And then chapter 3 starts a story about a different person, a grown man. But of course we know that he's not telling us a story about two different people, but one person, the same person, the same God-man, the same Saviour sent from heaven to be our deliverer. So what many of our neighbours, in all their joy over Christmas, will forget is that Jesus grows up and makes pretty profound demands upon us. He doesn't stay swaddled and lying in a manger. We used to go uh, occasionally when we had friends who had children at the local school in Dallington. We used to go to the Dallington Nativity. And it's one of their traditions that they have a real live baby in the nativity. Because the school is such a productive school, there's always a little, you know, a newborn baby. So they always line one of those up, which adds to something really real to it. But he doesn't stay swaddled and lying in a manger. The whole story is all about who this Jesus really is. But it's not only our neighbours who need to have their eyes open to who Jesus really is. We do too. At whatever stage we've reached in our Christian life, be we reached the age of 90 or more, or much earlier than that, all of us need to know that we don't yet know Jesus as he is fully known. One of the joys we shall have in eternity is taking eternity to get to know the one who is without limit. So if you think after day two of eternity you know everything even as you are fully known and there's nothing more to learn, think again. How can you get to know the infinite one unless you have forever to do that? So we'll only discover more when we see him face to face and get to know him. The Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark and Luke, reveal that the understanding of who Jesus is comes very slowly to the disciples. Even Peter's declaration, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, comes a long way into each of those three Gospels. And even that was a flash of inspiration that almost disappeared the moment it arrived. John's Gospel is a bit different. He's keen that we should know who Jesus is, so he packs chapter 1 of, God, of John's Gospel, which no doubt you'll be reading at some time over Christmas, but in the whole chapter he, re, he stuffs in lots of revelations. He has um, John making the declaration right in the beginning that the Word was God. Throws it out of straight away. John the Baptist says, look, the Lamb of God, and adds, he is the Son of God. Andrew tells his brother Simon, we found the Messiah. Philip finds Nathaniel and tells him, we find the one that Moses wrote about. And Nathaniel himself says, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel to Jesus. So he packs all this stuff into his gospel right at the beginning. But we know it took the, go the, the gospel writers and all the other disciples ages to get to know who Jesus is. When we think of salvation, because his name means he will save his people from their sins. Salvation is wrapped up in the name. The name is wrapped up in salvation. When we think of salvation, we have to ask the question, what motivates God to save us? Why would God ever bother with us? Well, often when you ask that question, two answers come. And they are to do with human need. And they're both biblical. Human need includes the fact that we are lost and we need to be found. We are enslaved and need to be rescued. We are condemned and need to be pardoned. 
We are alienated and need to be reconciled. We're in darkness and we need light. And you could go on. They're all biblical pictures of our human need that give us a reason for God acting. Because of all this, God acted in salvation. You could also talk about God's character, divine emotion. You could have the wonderful affirmations that God loves us repeatedly, endlessly through the Bible. He pities us. He has compassion on us. He has mercy on us. He grieves over our willful waywardness. He longs for our return, and so on. You could add more to that. But a commentator who is commentating on the book of Ezekiel says this, all these truths about human need and divine emotion are thoroughly biblical, but for Ezekiel, and what he says is true in general, almost the sole issue, and certainly the overwhelming motivation, was what salvation would mean for God himself. What ultimately mattered was that God's name and reputation should be vindicated and God should be universally acknowledged as God. Why has God acted in salvation? Because his reputation was at stake. And he needed to do it for his own sake to declare to the world once and for all that the Lord is God. And because of our need, and because of the fact that he loves us. But behind it all lies our need to see that this is God's vindication of himself. So I want to draw your attention to three times when God himself speaks from heaven. And we have the first one in this very brief reading. As Jesus is 30 years old, or thereabouts, says Luke, he's about 30 years old. The Jewish people aren't so worried about chronology as we are. We would have to know whether he's 30 and 4 months, or 31, or 33, but Luke just says he's about 30. And he's being baptised. Heaven opens. The Holy Spirit descends in bodily form like a dove. Just let your imagination run riot there for a moment. I remember Jenny mentioning that and saying, how big do you think the dove was? A little dove like that. Why couldn't it have been a massively large dove? No reason. It doesn't say how big, it just says it was like a dove. And then the voice comes from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. In Matthew's um, gospel, he has the father saying, this is my son, not you are my son, this is my son, as if he's addressing the hearers, not just his son. Whether it's this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased, or you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Here is the father, cannot restrain himself, right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, even as it opens up and begins in earnest in chapter 3 of Luke, at his baptism, the father can't restrain himself and wants to say, this is my son, God coming to earth. This is God saying, enough of all the past. This is the big moment of history. In the past, God has spoken to us by many ways and through prophets and all sorts of ways, says the writer to the Hebrews. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. The parable of the vineyard workers who threaten, abuse, and ultimately kill 
or the servants that the owner sends to get his harvest share rise up finally when he sends his son. And if we read that parable with any sense of understanding, we say, don't send your son, you crazy person. They'll kill him. Don't you know what they'll do? <coughs> well, it is a parable that speaks about exactly what God did. He sent loads of people before to wake us up to what we need. And he finally gave us his son. Aren't we glad he did? This is my son. But notice this. The father says, you are my son, with you I'm well pleased. And he hasn't done anything yet. Not a single thing. He hasn't raised anyone from the dead. He hasn't healed anyone, calmed any storms, turned any water into wine, fed anyone. He's done absolutely nothing. He's had no teaching. He's asked questions, but no teaching. And the father says, I am well pleased with you. This is the Trinity celebrating what they've been waiting for since before the beginning of the world. Take time, my friends, over Christmas, in however you do it, to celebrate with the Trinity this most wonderful of truths. Enjoy it with your friends. Eat what you want. Give lavish gifts to others that say, I love you and I thought of you and I wanted just to say how much I honour you and so forth. Enjoy that. Whether you spend it with masses of people who are exhausted at the end of it or on your own and wish you had friends. Enjoy it to the full, but in the midst of it all, at some point or other, find space to say, to overflow with joy with the Trinity who say this was what we were waiting for, this opportunity for the Father to come. I had an email this week from a person who said, well, it was last week I think, a person who said, we've done with the turkey, we're eating up the trimmies now and I can't wait for the sales. And then she wrote and say, no, I'm not a month early, I'm living in America at the moment, we've just had Thanksgiving. And then she compared the two and she said what she found was really interesting was to have a celebration that is all about thanksgiving. That's all it is. You don't give gifts to anybody. You just sit together and thank God for the past year. Isn't that great? And then they move into Christmas and have all the joy of Christmas too. But they have this thanksgiving and she said she found it really helpful. So why don't you have your, at some point or the other, a thanksgiving. Just thank God. Go out into the woods and shout your praise to God. Stand on Bexhill Seafront or Eastbourne Seafront and shout into the wind. Praise the Lord. Look and see what God has done. Enjoy it. This is the Father and the Son and the Spirit together <coughs> celebrating this truth. Here's the second one. On the Mount of Transfiguration. If you're following me, it's in Luke chapter 9 and verse 35. Again, Jesus wants to spend a moment with his father. He takes Peter, John and James up with him on the mountain to pray. As he's praying, the appearance of his face changes and his clothes become as bright as a flash of lightning. Wow. Two men, Moses and Elijah. How did they know it was Moses and Elijah? I always have to ask that question. It's just wonderful, isn't it? Appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, Exodus which he was about to bring to fulfilment at Jerusalem. And Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. 
As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He didn't know what he was saying. Almost as he was going to carry on, a cloud appeared and stopped him in his tracks and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud, and that closed Peter's mouth. And then you have the voice coming from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Don't you just love that contrast? Peter, the moment he gets out, has a chance, just his run, mouth runs away with him. Do any of you have that trouble? I do sometimes. You just open your mouth and away it goes. And it's almost like God has to sort of wrap him up in a cloak of cloud and say, stop, stop. This is my son whom I have chosen. You listen to him. There are so many noises, aren't there, around. There's a ceaseless hum of noise. It is one of the pains of the age. You can't get away from it. If you live in a city, the noise level is high and it is relentless, isn't it? And you just get to know it. At one time, my youngest sister lived under the flight path to Heathrow. She had two little children. So whenever we were there, you had to sort of, when you're talking, you had to stop while the jumbo came over and then carry on. But the children were so used to it, they just carried on and totally ignored these huge aircraft going over. You could almost count the wheels and the rivets or whatever else they put them things together. <coughs> we get used to the volume of noise, don't we? And in fact, it's so incessant that most of us turn noise on if there is no noise because it gives a comfort. So you understand the person who lives on their own who puts the radio on or the television on just to have a bit of human connection even if it is electronic. You can understand that. Nothing wrong with that at all. But you find people going out, running in the fresh air. And what are they doing? Listening to the birds and the sound of water running? No, they've got earphones in, listening to something else, aren't they? And you go and say good morning to them, they go by and they totally ignore you because they're listening to something else and they aren't even aware you're there. Well, maybe they're listening to deep truths as well. But God says to us, listen to him. The word of God is living and active. So I hope you'll enjoy at some point reading the story of Christmas. And don't rush it. I know you know it off by heart, but let God speak to you. Here's a truth. Here's a truth you may want to sort of refresh yourself. Because you see, around the Christmas story is a load of folklore, isn't there? It's a brilliant story. Why wouldn't it have a load of folklore? But if you're not careful, you read the story listening to the folklore, not the story. You see, the story is, in one of the nativity plays, that Joseph and Mary will go on the donkey and arrive in Bethlehem as she's about to give birth, won't they? It says here, he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. It wasn't on the night they arrived. It could have been two months later. You see, the folklore adds to it. Most of us think it says, 
um, there was no room in the inn. So we have this dear little lad dressed up as an innkeeper who has to say, no room, go in the back, or something for his big part. But you see, there's two words that Luke uses in this way. This one means guest room. It doesn't mean in in a commercial way. It's guest room. Now, do you know what the city? Do you know where the city of David? Tell me where the city of David. What is the city of David? It's not Bethlehem. It's Jerusalem. Is the city of David, right? But Bethlehem was where David was born. So, by common consent, it has been called the city of David. But it wasn't the city of David. Jerusalem was the city of David. But because it is the royal birthplace of the royal king, it's got that name. Now, Joseph belongs to this city. Therefore, he is of royal line. What's more, as in many cultures, a pregnant woman would be given huge amount of help from all the other women in the area. She would certainly not be ignored. So any idea that you've got innkeepers saying, go away, wherever, is completely false. They are embraced into a family who've already got their guest room full. There's no room in the guest room. So they say, come and join us in the family room, the only other room in the house, which includes where the animals are at the end, which is why Jesus is put into a manger, because it's a handy little receptacle in that room, filled with dry straw. So far from this idea that Bethlehem closed its doors against the master and his family, they embraced them and brought them in. And that's why it's a sign, you see, for, these, for the shepherds. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Do you know who wrapped their babies in cloths? and lay them in mangers. Poor people, not rich people, poor people. And what the angel was saying to the shepherds, don't think we're asking you to go to a palace. We're asking you to go to people just like you. This will be a sign. It's just like you do. Your wives wrap the babies in swaddling clothes. Your wives lay them in the nearest receptacle. Could be a manger. That's why it was a sign to the, angel, to the shepherds. You got it? So as you read the story of Christmas again, read it carefully and let God open his word to you and listen. Listen. There is so much, isn't there? I hope you're going to read huge chunks of it in your services here. Not just the odd verse, but huge chunks of it. I love Nine Lessons and Carols where they take ages to read loads of the stuff. Because it really is a brilliant story. And it gives us a chance to listen. This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. The third time comes in, Acts, in, in John chapter 12. And verse 28. And if you know the chronology of John's gospel, you know by chapter 12, we're right on the edge of the crucifixion. We're only halfway through the gospel, but we're right on the edge of the crucifixion because John has slowed the pace right down. And from now on, it will go moment by moment. This is right near the end. Jesus is staring down the barrel. He knows what's coming. It will come in a few hours. Now, there were some 
Greeks among them, those who went up to worship at the feast, and they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request, Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. And Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. And Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Up to this point, he keeps saying, it's not for you any time is fine, but for me it's not yet right. The hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. But with this request from the Greeks, Jesus says, Now the hour has come. Now has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honour the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled. Of course it would be, because now the cost is about to be paid. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Well, he'll actually ask that in the other Gospels, not in this one. Shall I ask that? Save me from this hour? It's a real question. No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. So then he just says, this is what it's all about. Father, glorify your name. Let the world know who you are, he's asking. Let the world see who you are. This is for your name and for your sake. And the voice comes from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. This is what it's been working towards. Of course, some people think it just thunders. Other people think an angel has spoken to him. But Jesus knew who it was. It was the Father saying, I have glorified it before and I'm going to glorify it again. And it will be on the cross. This will be the way the world will see what kind of God I am. This will be the place of glory. It will be a cross. And you have to join that to the burial and the resurrection and the ascension as well. You can't isolate any of those things. But that's what it's going to be first. It'll be a cross. And it's going to catch them all by surprise. But it is, that's the way it changes lives. And this week we have had the most powerful parable you could possibly imagine to illustrate the effect that God is seeking here. Who would have believed, for those of us who lived through the 90s and watched with bated breath the horrors of South Africa? And Christians across the globe prayed earnestly, I bet you were among them, because what we expected to happen was that the antagonism and the inferno that was South Africa would turn into a complete blood bud bloodbath with massacres of an un unprecedented proportions. And if I remember with any accuracy, the world heard, held its breath. And then a man walked free from prison without a bitter bone in his body and engaged in dialogue and the president of South Africa said he wanted reconciliation. He wanted to forgive us. He didn't want to condemn us. And who would have thought 
but it was because one man could lead others into a pathway of reconciliation through forgiveness that the bloodbath was spared. Oh, there's plenty of animosity and there's danger and people are being killed, but not on any scale like people anticipated after the riots. Because one man thought the way through was forgiveness and reconciliation. Well, God knew that, which is why he glorifies his name in the cross. This is still the way. I was reading a book on politics, not my usual subject this week. And this guy, American guy, who was very involved, a Christian guy, very involved in politics in America, in the 1990s they had tremendous riots within the gang culture of their large cities. Los Angeles was one of them. And he and a number of other concerned folk got together. And the gang leaders, these young men, black and white, these young men in their teens and very early 20s, called a ceasefire and asked to see certain people, among whom was the man who was writing the story who asked these gang leaders after a very profitable discussion and said, what can we as a church do for you? How can we help you? And these thugs, who are not averse to doing the most unspeakably wicked things in their past, who had called a halt to it, said, what the church can do for us is show us how we can have a relationship with God. Can you believe that? He could hardly believe his ears. These were these thugs, these violent young men whose pleasure it was to do unspeakable things to other people and just do it for the sake of it. Had realised that that wasn't getting anywhere at all. And what they needed more than anything else was a relationship with God. So as we go through Christmas, my friends, and as you find ways to just celebrate the truth that this is... God showing us how he really cares for us. God doing something. As we listen to the story, don't be ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. My friends, it's still the only answer to man's needs. However sophisticated we may have become, however entrenched the horrors of places like Syria and Cambodia and others that have long since left the front page of our newspapers and others. The answer is still the gospel. So that's why Paul could say right at the beginning of his precious letter, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, old or young, educated, uneducated, oppressor, oppressed, whoever you are, the gospel is still God's answer. So as we enjoy Christmas, remember that. This is God's answer to our world. It's not some tinsely thing that isn't really up to working in our real world. This is God in our real world. We've put the tinsel there. Have the tinsel or don't have the tinsel, whatever you like. But the message of the gospel hasn't got any tinsel on it. It's true and real and earthy and strong. Let me pray.
Father, for Christmas, we thank you. For the gift of your Son, we thank you. For the salvation that we can have because of the gift of your Son, we thank you. For the Spirit who comes to bring us to life that is a gift from you through the Son you gave, we thank you. For the ongoing life we enjoy, thank you. So as we celebrate this truth over the next few weeks, Lord, fill our hearts with joy and delight, happiness and pleasure. Let us be generous to a fault, to friends, family, neighbours, anybody, Lord, to share this good news. We believe too the gospel is still the only way. And it is your power. So may many people, Lord, Many of those for whom we prayed much see your kingdom this year. For Jesus' sake. Amen.